Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. And here at the outset, I'm, I'm going to, actually, I'm going to read our passage. And so Ephesians chapter 5, there should be a Bible in front of you on the pew back. If you don't have one, um, you're welcome to use that. And, and actually, if you like it, you can take it. Um, it's not stealing. You can take it home, and, and, and that can be your own. We, we love, as a church, we, we never want to be charged of, of not being generous with God's Word. So if you need a Bible, take it. Um, so Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 15 through 21 uh, this morning. So I'm going to read it. So I'm going to begin in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 5, so you can follow along as I read. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. Apostle Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's, let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning that, that you would encourage us in ways that we need to be encouraged. Lord, I pray you would convict us in ways that we need to be convicted challenge us where we need to be challenged, shine the light of your word in the dark places of our hearts and lives. Lord, this, this word is, is no ordinary word, and so it, it can do things that no ordinary word can, and so we're asking that you, by your spirit, uh, would do a, a marvelous work in our lives through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, so I've titled this sermon, Walking Wisely, uh, or wise walking. I'm not, I'm not sure which way, but, but you get the point, wh- whether you go with walking wisely or wise walking. Uh, but but, but the, 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 the path that Paul lays out here is, is to walk wisely. He, he's continuing, continuing this theme of how Christians live their lives is different. And so just last week, the end of last week's passage, he, he used the, the illustration of, of darkness and light to, to talk about the difference. Well, here... He picks up a theme that, that is common in Jewish literature. So if this, this wisdom literature, think about the, the books of, of Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. These are traditions of wisdom literature. And so Paul, in light of those themes, is just going to lay out, hey, we're to walk wisely. We're not to walk as fools or foolishly. And so, so that's, that's his main point in these verses. He, he wants them to walk wisely and and. and Specifically, if you think about the book of Proverbs, the big picture, the wise one in Proverbs is the one who lives their life in light of God. So so the wise person lives every day of their life in light of God and his existence and who he is. And so wisdom, a life of wisdom, is a life that's lived in light of God. And so it's a God-centered life, whereas the fool... The fool lives as if God doesn't exist. That, that's how Proverbs lays out wisdom and folly. So the fool lives as if God doesn't exist. In fact, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That, that's the definition of what foolishness is, is believing there is no God. Because there is a God, and he does exist. And so wisdom is, is walking in light of God's 
existence, living a God-centered life. And so that's what Paul says when he says walk wisely. He means walk in light of God's existence and, and to, to walk a God-centered life. So that's the main idea, walk wisely. And so what he does is he gives three examples of what wise walking looks like. And so first there in verses 15 through 16, he says walking wisely is, is redeeming the time. Second, verse 17, walking wisely understands God's will. And then thirdly, walking wisely is walking spirit-filled or, or walking a spirit-filled walk. And then in light of that, that number three, he then breaks down and gives three specifics of what a spirit-filled life looks like. Okay, so, so we'll get to that later. But, but our main outline, as I've just walked through, are those examples of what it means to walk wisely. Okay, so that's, that's our outline. Wise walking redeems the time. Wise walking understands God's will. And wise walking is spirit-filled. But before we look at the first point there in our outline, look at verse 15, because I want to show why I think wise walking is the main idea of the passage. So there, verse 15, he begins, Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. And so Paul begins a section with a call to walk. Look carefully how you walk. And if you've been with us throughout this series, this, this, this description of, the, of life as a walk is not new. He has mentioned it over and over. So, so some of your translations may not have the word walk. Don't get caught up on, he's saying walk, it, it doesn't say walk. Maybe your translation says live. Okay, so, so be careful how you live. That, that's the idea he's conveying. When he says you walk wisely, he's meaning you live wisely. So walk and live are, are synonymous. So maybe your translation has live. But his point throughout this whole second half of Ephesians has been Christians live lives in a specific way. They live lives differently. And so in, in chapter 4, he, he calls Christians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. In verse 17 of chapter 4, he says you must no longer walk as the Gentiles. In chapter 5 verse 2, he says, walk in love. In chapter 8, or verse 8 of chapter 5, he says, walk as children of the light. So here in verse 15 of chapter 5, he says, look carefully how you walk. So walk is this theme that's run through the second half of the, the letter to the Ephesians. And so Paul wants them to walk differently. He wants them to walk and live as they have been called, as Christians. And notice in verse 15, he says, walk not unwise." But why? So, so there's a way to walk that's not wise. He says, Christians, you don't walk unwisely, you walk wisely. So wisdom should characterize your walk, is what Paul is saying. And so here, Paul says that in order to walk wisely, Christians are required to look or watch carefully how they live. So he says, that you're going to walk, but you've got to watch how you walk. You've got to pay attention to how you walk. You're to be careful how you live. Or in the King James, if you have, the phrase says, walk circumspectly. So, so, so walk in a way that, that you're looking at how you walk, paying attention. And so Paul is urging Christians to live carefully, to live lives of wisdom and not of folly. And this call, as we saw in the first half of the, the letter to the Ephesians, this call to walk is fitting with what God has done in saving them. So, so, so they've been made alive with Christ. They've been saved by God's grace alone, but, but they've been saved to live a life of good works. They've been saved to live. And that living is going to be characterized by wisdom. They're to live their lives for God, not for themselves. They, were, they once were dead as they lived for themselves. They've been made alive with Christ through faith in Jesus. They've been made new, and now they have new life that they're called to live for God, for his glory, for the, the, the love of Jesus Christ. And so for the Christian, this call to walk wisely is a call that extends to every hour, every minute of your life. 
It's not just in the major decisions. You, you are to walk. Your identity is to be along the path of wisdom, walking along that path. You, you never let your guard down. We must not. We must, must keep watch on our lives. There, there's a quote that says, you never drift anywhere good. And so, so the Christian walk, to walk in wisdom, requires diligence and, and vigilance. We've got to watch ourselves because if, if we just say, well, I, I don't care, I'm just going to drift, we're never going to go towards wisdom, right? Our default is not wisdom, right? If you have kids, you know that. The default is away from wisdom. And so we have to watch, and we're required to walk in wisdom. And so, so that, that's Paul's call here. And so the first example, now we look there at verse 16, the first example of walking wisely is redeeming the time. So, so look there, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And so according to these verses, a, a life characterized by wisdom is a life that is centered around God, a life that makes best use of the time. And so live a God-centered life is to, is to use your time in the best way possible. Maybe your translation says making the most of every opportunity, or maybe it says even redeeming or buying back the time. That's the idea. Buy back your time. Use it well, because, he says, the days are evil. And so this first point that Paul makes regarding wise walking is that wise walking makes the most of time. And I I don't think we need to get too bogged down. I think what Paul here is a metaphorical way of speaking, of just saying, hey, use your time well. Use your time well. The, the, the Christian, in fact, the non-Christian as well, but, but we live in a world where time is constantly passing. You can't stop it. It's, it's, it's ever increasing and progressing and passing. It can't be stopped. And in this context, Paul highlights the fact that in our world, right, the, the, the context of passing time is a broken world. We live in a fallen world, and time continually goes in this fallen world. And the natural tendency the normal trajectory of the human life is towards evil. That, that, that was the, the point of chapter 2. That is the natural man is bent on evil, is bent against God. And, and that's the context of the world that the Christians live in. And so he's saying the days are evil. You, live, you find yourself living in a world that was filled with evil. I think that was the context in Ephesus, and that's certainly context here. And so as you live in a world with evil days, I think Paul's just saying it, it's not hard for you to find a way to disobey or displease the Lord. Right? It's, it abounds. Right? You're, you're living in a fallen world with evil days, so you better be careful how you walk. You better make the use of your time. I mean, I, I think one, one commentator said, time is going by and evil will use it if Christians do not. It's going by. So, so if, you don't, if you don't use it for good, for God's purposes, it's certainly not going to be used in a beneficial way. So redeem the time. Use it for good, I think is what Paul's saying. And so we want to be wise walkers. We, we want to redeem our time. We want to use our time well. And so just the first point of application I'll make is, is simply what Paul would say, use your time wisely. So if you're here and you're a Christian, hear this. Use your time wisely. I think walking wisely, redeeming the time, first of all, the, the first clear uh, outsource or... or, or application of this is simply to avoid sin, right? So, so my time as a Christian, all of it should be focused on loving and honoring and serving God. So, so I'm called to live, live a life that, that, that is centered around God, right? He saved me, and he's given me life, and he's given me hope. So, so I should honor him, which means avoiding sin, 
Right? So, so using my time wisely means avoiding sin. So, so if I'm going to in, intentionally indulge in sinful behavior, that is contrary to the purposes that God has for me. So walking wisely is not pursuing sin, but it's pursuing God. You can't pursue both at the same time. And so walking wisely is pursuing God and not sin. So that's the first way we avoid sin. But, but secondly, walking wisely, redeeming the time, also means using your time purposefully. I think, this is, I think this is what I need to hear more. This is what we need to hear more. I think this is the much bigger issue in our time. It's not that we're intentionally pursuing sin, though, so that certainly is a problem. I think we're just wasting time. I think we're just wasting it. We're wasting our days away, spending hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of our days glued to a screen. Pick your screen, but, but we spend our lives wasting time on, on useless things at the end of the day. Now, statistics, right? You can use them to say whatever you want. So, so hear that, but I'm going to give you some statistics. Right? So, so just, just to, to show the, the world that we're living in. So every single day, so maybe you don't know, but there's this thing called Facebook. right? It's, it's this website that connects people to, to other people. right? And every day, 1.2 billion people log into this, this website. right? 1.2 billion. I think there's... It was 4.5 billion that, that do it monthly, which that, that's staggering in itself. But every day, 1.2 billion people log into Facebook. And so that's a lot of people using that specific thing. But, but here, listen to this. The average person touches, swipes, or clicks their phone 2,617 times a day. Yeah. I, I mean, yes, yeah, statistics can say anything, but, but that, that's shocking, the average smartphone user spends three and a half hours a day on their phone and picks up their phone 80 times a day. I mean, can you imagine? Maybe, maybe, maybe count if you can. Right? Even just looking like, oh, did I get an email? Did, did, did I get a text? Did someone say anything? Did someone come? But just picking it up. Right? The average person is 80 times a day, the average smartphone user. And, and here's, this is what, what I find the most staggering, that American adults, so I found two different stats on, on the, the American adult average amount of time spent looking at a screen per day. Um, so so one, one, one stat, one um, survey found that the average American adult devotes more than 10 hours a day looking at a screen. Another one said 11 hours per day. Okay, so that, that means 11 hours per day. I mean, some of you maybe aren't awake 11 hours a day. But 11 hours a day is spent, now, now this means either, either watching, so maybe you're thinking, ha, all those, all those young kids with, with those smartphones, right? If you're looking at a TV, right, that's screen time, right? Your Westerns or whatever you watch, right? But, but that means 11 hours a day on, on average, whether watching or reading, right? Maybe you're reading on your Kindle, listening, or simply interacting with media, Right? American adults devote 11 hours per day. So, so I, I took the 11 hours per day because that's a higher number. But, but so if you multiply that out times six days a week, I'll give, you, I'll give you one day off. Though actually it seems that weekends it, it increases, but I'll, I'll say one day off a week. So six days a week at 11 hours per day equals 4,015 hours per year, which means, if you, if you do, now again, this is statistics, but, but I think this makes a, a compelling point that would mean that the average American adult spends 167 days a year looking at a screen. That's almost half of each year spent doing that. 
Now, now, hear me say, right, we need discernment. I'm not saying that screen time is bad, but these statistics are staggering. This is not redeeming the time to spend 167 days of a 365-day year looking at a screen or watching television. Statistics can be very subjective, but at the end of the day, it's not hard to see that Americans are wasting hours and hours each day, and Christians are not exempt from that wasting of time. Video games, smartphones, apps, Netflix, all of these things. And and so I just want to say, let this charge fall on you. Let let the Lord convict you if he's going to convict you. We are called to redeem the time. Use the time wisely. Using your time wisely, it's not just avoiding sin, but it's also purposely using your time, which is not, I would say, done well when you're passively swiping and swiping and swiping. So redeeming the time for the Christian in today's society is seen in using your time in ways that honors God. I mean, spend your time reading his word and praying. Can you imagine if, if the average Christian spent 11 hours per day looking at something that was spiritually encouraging or nurturing, I I think the state of our country might be a little bit different. Spend your time reading good books. Spend your time serving others. Spend your time with others. Like actual real people, not not just names on a screen. Like talk to people. I mean, uh, young folks, right? You're learning, you're, you're forgetting how to interact with people. So, so, so have conversations with people because people are real. So spend time with other people. Listen to them. Talk with them. Don't act like they're the distraction from your phone. It should be the other way around, always. I mean, envision standing before the Lord one day and him pulling out a summary of all your screen time and you having to give an account for every hour that you spent scrolling news feeds and memes and all these things and trying to explain to the Lord that you didn't, have enough, you didn't have enough time to invest in his church or his people or your non-Christian neighbors. I mean, one pastor, this, he, he tweeted this, which I understand it's ironic, but listen to what he says. <laughs> he says, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. That hurts. That hurts. Christian, we're called to redeem the time, to use our time well. That's what wise walking looks like. That's the first example. Well, well secondly, and again, if you want help with this, there are tons of resources that, that I could point you to. I actually, in my office, I have a stack of books called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. It is, it's convicting, but it's, it's a really powerful book. So see me, and I, I love to point you to some resources. But secondly, look there at verse 17. Wise walking understands God's will. So verse 17, Paul says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so wise walking isn't foolish. So Paul says don't be foolish, rather instead understand what the will of the Lord is. And so Paul here in in verse 17 is identifying understanding God's will as the contrast to foolishness. And so so understand God's will. Wise walking understands God's will. Now, now, what Paul does here, now I think this is important to, to understand what Paul means, God's will in the book of Ephesians is not something that's hidden. If you remember all the way back in chapter 1, right, the mystery that once was hidden has been made known. 
And so the mystery of God's will is manifest. So, so it's not something we got to find. So when he says understand God's will, it's not as though it's hidden and you just got to find out, okay, what does God want me to do? That's not what he's meaning here. Paul's exhortation to understand God's will isn't so much a call to uncover the hidden as it is a call to live in light of the revealed. So I'll say that again. Paul's exhortation to understand God's will isn't so much a call to uncover the hidden as it is a call to live in light of the revealed. And so God has already made known his will. Right? That, that, that Jesus Christ save you from your sins and that, that he make you alive when you were once dead and him to raise you to life and, and to, to, to form you into his likeness after holiness and righteousness. And so that's his will, that, that you would walk like Jesus. That, that's been revealed. And so understanding God's will is, is in light of that reality, figuring out, okay, what does that look like in my day-to-day life? So, 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 so how do I pursue Christ's likeness in this situation? Right, that's understanding God's will. Okay, how does what God has revealed dictate or affect how I live now? I mean, in this way, or in this sense, those WWJD bracelets weren't actually that bad. Right? It's like in every circumstance, every situation, every argument with a spouse, every disagreement with a child, every frustration with a coworker, you're just saying, okay, what would Jesus do here? How can I be Christ-like now? And so as you understand God's will in light of the big picture, you know, okay, this is what it looks like in this situation. It's not a mystery like, okay, should I yell at my son or should I be patient with my son? Let me, what is God's will here? No, 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 God has revealed. I'm to be like Jesus, and in that circumstance, God has put me there so that I might walk in good works, that I might be patient. God has saved us, and that miraculous act is what shapes God's will for our lives. We are new people raised with Christ to new life. And so our old self has been crucified, and our new self has been created after the likeness of Christ. And so my life is lived in light of what God has done for me in Christ. And that, that affects every single decision, every single moment that I live in this world. And so in this context of, here's one commentary that, that affirms what I'm saying. Well, in this context of moral exhortation, discerning the Lord's will probably entails discerning how the resurrected Lord would want his people to respond in every moral choice they are confronted with in day-to-day life. And so wise walking understands God's will and lives in light of what God has done for them in Christ. That's, that's how the Christian walks wisely. So wise walking redeems the time. Wise walking understands God's will. And then finally, the last point that Paul makes here in these verses, point three, wise walking is spirit-filled. Let's look there, verse 18 of chapter five. Paul writes, verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so in this final exhortation, Paul says that wise walking isn't drunkenness. So wise walking avoids drunkenness. And in contrast, it doesn't get drunk, but is filled with the Spirit. And so, so, so again, he's, he's employing this, this negative positive, this put off, put on method of instruction. Don't get drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with intoxicating drink. Be filled with the Spirit because a life of wisdom that is filled with the Spirit is what pleases the Lord, not a life that is confused and filled with wine that leads to not pleasing the Lord. And so in terms of understanding why Paul would single out drunkenness, we don't know the exact context, context of the church there, 
But in this, this passage, the context, Paul has spent the last few verses calling Christians to walk carefully, to use their time wisely, to understand God's will for their lives. And all of these things assume, I would say even require, sober thinking. So what he's just called them to, here's what wise walking looks like, drunkenness is the opposite of what he's calling them to. The drunk person doesn't redeem the time. Doesn't walk carefully. In fact, it's the opposite. And so I think he just, he, he mentions drunkenness to, to, to highlight the contrast. And so Paul's main point here is, is not about wine or alcohol. That's not his point. We can't get caught on that. His point is about living a spirit-filled life. That's what he wants you to come away with thinking. The hallmark gift of, of the new covenant is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so here Paul calls believers to yield their lives completely to the Spirit's influence, which is his main point, which includes the call to resist coming under the pull of other mind-altering and numbing substances. And so being drunk robs you of clear thinking and leads you to destructive and unacceptable ways of living. That's just the reality of things. He wants to show the incompatibility of drunkenness with being Spirit-filled. You're either under the influence of intoxicating drink or of the Spirit. I think Paul's argument would, would extend to any mind-altering substance, drug, or medication. Right? Under the influence of, of something else is in opposition to being under the influence of the Spirit. And so get drunk on the Spirit, I think Paul would say. But his, his primary purpose is to urge his readers to live by the Spirit continually. And so walking in wisdom means being Spirit-filled, which is not, by the way, some people believe that, that you're filled with the Spirit subsequent to salvation, that, that you're saved, and then, as a mark of, of your progress in spirituality, you're filled with the Spirit again. There's a filling, and people, people pray for and live for an extra filling. I don't think that's, that's what the Bible teaches. That's not what Paul's saying here. When you're filled with the Spirit, it's, it's once and for all. You get all of Him at conversion, Right? You are filled, if you're a Christian, you have every ounce of the Holy Spirit. You don't, you don't need to be filled anymore. You're not lacking any. The fullness of God dwells in you through his Spirit. So, so he's not teaching a, a second baptism. He's saying be filled with the Spirit. Be filled. Don't, don't, don't fill yourself. It's passive. Be filled with the Spirit. But the idea is that, yes, you've already been filled with the Spirit, but, but continue to live or live continually in light of that filling of the Spirit. And so, and so there's a human responsibility, a, a, a moral responsibility for the Christian to keep in step with the Spirit that has been given to them. So keep in step, live with the Spirit, cooperate with the Spirit, don't grieve the Spirit, cooperate with, be controlled by the Spirit, which they're responsible for doing. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I, I am going to make a, a brief aside because although it isn't the main point of the text, I do think it's fitting here to at least clarify what, what the Bible does and does not say about alcohol, about wine, because this, this is addressed here. And so while Paul, one, one, well, first thing to say, Paul clearly condemns drunkenness. Right? So, so it's careful, I mean, it's important to understand what he says. He says, don't get drunk with wine, which is not the same as don't drink wine. Do we all understand that? So he prohibits clearly drunkenness. And so the Bible, New Testament is clear that drunkenness is always wrong. Always, no questions asked. Drunkenness is wrong. Always a sin. So Romans 13, 13, Paul says, walk properly 
and then gives these lists of not walking properly. Drunkenness is not walking properly. Galatians 5.19, drunkenness is in this long list of the works of the flesh. He says the works of the flesh are evident. One of them is drunkenness. 1 Peter 4.3, he says the time has passed for what the Gentiles do, as in the non-Christians, and one of the things, one of the things that characterize the, the Gentile, the non-Christian, is drunkenness. And so drunkenness is always a sin. Always a sin, right? So that's the first thing to recognize. Now for some people, right, so, so if you, maybe because of past history, because of family history, because of personal experience, if one drink leads you down the path that inevitably goes towards drunkenness, you should not have one drink. That's some people, that's the case. I mean, I, I've talked with you, I know that that's the case. And so in that case, it would be wrong for you to have one drink. But, and here's where, where we have to be clear, that principle cannot be placed on all Christians. It just can't. In other words, while the Bible clearly condemns drunkenness, it does not anywhere clearly condemn the drinking of alcohol. So that's the second thing we just have to recognize. Drunkenness, always condemned. Drinking of alcohol, never condemned. So, so, so these, are the two, these are the two parameters. And, and we have to be somewhere in between here. We have to avoid calling sin what Scripture doesn't clearly call sin. Now, now throughout Scripture, it does mention that, that there are many dangers of alcohol. It's a deceptive drink in some places. And so, so we should hear that. And some people say, no, 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 they're, they're, the, the risk outweighs the reward or the benefit. So some people say, wisdom says that, we sh- that you should not, as a Christian, drink alcohol. Now, now, now some people, that, that, that's the wisdom of some. But that's, that, that's not Bible, the Bible cannot be used to say, if you have a drink of alcohol, you're in sin. That, that's nowhere laid out in Scripture. Now, it's one thing to argue, well, I don't think it's wise for a Christian to drink alcohol. That's one thing. But it's another thing to say, if a Christian drinks alcohol, he or she is in sin. The Bible doesn't, doesn't allow that. Nowhere in the New Testament is a Christian prohibited from drinking alcohol. I mean, there, there are a number of examples where, where wine is, it cheers the heart. One of the, the Proverbs says, or, or Jesus turns water into wine. And you could argue all you want about, well, that wasn't like our wine. No, no, he turned it into wine knowing there was a lot of it and a lot of people were going to drink it. I mean, Paul says, if you have a hurt stomach, drink a little bit of wine. Right? So I'm not a doctor. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that Paul commends the drinking of alcohol in the New Testament. And so I just want to make the point, and this, this is instructive, this this affects how we do life together as a church. We must not draw lines where Scripture doesn't draw lines. We must not draw lines where Scripture doesn't draw lines, especially when it comes to, comes to what is considered sin and what is not. Now, we can have strong opinions on the issue. We can have convinced consciences, but we cannot press our convictions on others as though it is law of God. We must, we, must speak, we must be careful to speak boldly where God has spoken clearly, and we must be careful to speak, we must be sure to speak carefully where God has not spoken clearly, and God has not spoken clearly on the consumption of alcohol. Now, I'll receive your emails during the week or phone calls or visits. <laughs> um, but again, back to our point, the use of alcohol isn't Paul's main point here. His main point is to exhort the Ephesian Christians to live spirit-filled lives. He says, don't, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he modifies what being filled with the Spirit looks like. 
And so that's the rest of verses 19 through 21. They modify this, this last call of being spirit-filled. And so, so after laying out the main exhortation, verses 19 through 21, he explains what a spirit-filled life looks like. So he says, continues in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so all five of those activities, those actions, are Paul's fleshing out of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Do you understand how, how, how I understand this passage working? So wise walking is Spirit-filled, and then here's examples of what Spirit-filled person looks like. And there's three categories. And so in summary, the Spirit-filled Christian is the person whose life is characterized by singing, by thanksgiving, and by mutual submission. And so, so that's, how, that's how I would outline verses 18 through 21. So, so first, spirit-filled Christians are people whose lives are characterized by singing. By singing, right? I, I, that's, that's what I think he's arguing in verse 19. The spirit-filled person is the person who sings. I mean, I mean, one author said, singing is the natural expression of joy that God brings into a person's life. If you know God and you never have reason for singing, you probably don't know God. Right? So Christianity is the singing religion. God saved us when we were unsavable. Right? That ought to give you a song to sing. And so Paul says the spirit-filled person, verse 19, addresses one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And so the context here, did you notice there's two audiences? So, so we sing for, for two audiences. Paul argues the purpose of singing is both to praise God, but also to instruct others. Did you notice that? So, so first he says Christians address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So, so there's this horizontal aspect to this singing. And so this, this happens hopefully every time the church comes together for, for a corporate worship service. And, and so Christians, as long as we have been meeting, and, and early church records confirm this, Christian gatherings have, off, have always, often, have always been characterized by singing. When Christians gathered, there was song. It's fitting for the church to sing together. That's why we, we don't just have solos every week, right? We would be robbing you of singing together, of instructing and addressing one another in song. And so Paul says when we gather and sing, we are to address one another. Now, now, we don't do this here. I, I've heard stories of this happening. This could mean, in the midst of, uh, of singing a hymn, Kevin could say, hey, look to the person beside you and keep singing. So some people hear that and say, hey, we're called to address one another. We're going to sing to one another. So some architecture of churches are built so that when you're singing, you're actually you're, you're, you're addressing one another. You're facing each other. That's not how we are, but, but some architectural designs were intentional in that because they want to sing to one another. I'm not, I'm not going to reorganize our pews for next week, but I will say there is a horizontal aspect, and I've mentioned this before, but if I were to come sing the same songs we sing this morning at 6 a.m. this morning when I got here, it would not be the same as when I sing it with all of you together. There is an, an aspect of I am encouraged when I hear you all singing, and it's not because you sing really well. It's, it's because the words you're singing are from your heart, right? And you believe them to be true, and so you're instructing me as you sing. And so we address one another when we sing. 
And so, so, so as you sing, you should sing the words of the songs that we, that we sing together. You should sing, especially if you're discouraged and had a hard week. You should, you should try and sing, but if you can't make out the words, if you, if you, can't, if you don't have enough to sing yourself, listen. Listen to your brothers and sisters. They're instructing you on the nature of God, on his his care for you, his love for you. They're instructing you on what Jesus did for you on the cross. So maybe you've had a hard week and you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with guilt. I, I failed so many times. I've been a miserable father this week. Maybe that's you and you can't even sing. That's okay, but listen. Because you have brothers and sisters all around you that, that are there addressing you with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs telling you, it's, God loves you. There's forgiveness for you. Jesus died for you. And so I think it's biblical to sing the words of the songs here on Sunday morning. You're addressing each other. But it's not just each other, so there's the horizontal aspect, but, but the second audience that Paul mentions here is the Lord himself. So at, at the end of the verse, he says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And, and so we're singing to two, two audiences at the same time with the same, same words. And as Paul's saying, as you sing, you ought to sing with your heart, not just emotionally, not just like, hey, sing like you mean it from the heart. No, it's your heart is the, is the, the central operating, the, the main frame of your life. Your heart is, is who you are that, that you operate out of. And he says, what you sing ought to match how you live out from your heart. You shouldn't come here and just sing words that, that, that aren't true during the rest of the week. And so sing from your heart. Singing should be the overflow of your life. Your heart is the control center of your life, and you ought to live to God from your heart, and you ought to sing to God from your heart. That's who you are. You as a Christian ought to sing to the Lord. And so maybe you ought to go away from here recognizing that when we come together in corporate worship, we are giving you a chance to address your Lord. And so the songs you're singing are songs from you to the Lord. I mean, that, that should change how you view your singing. It ought to. Spirit-filled Christians are people whose lives are characterized by singing. Now, now the, the corporate context, I think, is the main context, but this happens all over. Right? So, so at your house, with your kids, or with your coworkers, or friends, right? They, you, should, you should sing things to edify and to build up. Well, well second, spirit-filled Christians are those not only characterized by singing, but by thanksgiving. So verse 20 Paul writes, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in addition to singing, the life in the Spirit is characterized by giving thanks. And again, thanksgiving, just like song, is the natural response of the Christian. Right? We have something to be thankful for at all times. We were dead in sins and trespasses, strangers to the covenant, separated from God. And because of God's doing, because of his great love for us, by his mercy, we have been saved brought near, made part of the family, made alive, all of these things. So no matter what happens in my life, no matter what the circumstances are, I have reason to give thanks. Deep down, right, sometimes there's a lot going on and it's hard, but but if 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 you work hard, you can get down and find reason to give thanks. Because notice Paul says, give thanks always and for everything. And so so if you notice in the prayer this morning, I gave thanks for, for Democrats and Republicans, Right? So, so we ought to give thanks. Supplications and thanksgiving may, may be made on behalf of all your leaders. Right? We ought to give thanks for all of our leaders, regardless of political affiliation. 
Right? Thanksgiving is grounded in the fact that for the Christian, all things are working together for your good. Did you know that, Christian? God's promised that everything that happens to you, good or bad, has come through God's sovereign hand and is, is for your good. I mean, that's, that's a promise. And so Thanksgiving is dependent on the fact that God is in control and that nothing happens apart from his divine will. He works all things according to the purpose of his will. And so Christian Thanksgiving believes that God is good and that God is in control. And, and that leads to Thanksgiving. The Christian give th- gives thanks to God the Father in the Son's name for the riches that have been lavished upon us in Christ. When all else is, in cha- when all else is chaos... Right? So I'm not saying that everything is always going to go well. Right? Some of you have had chaos. Maybe you're still in chaos. You don't understand why God is letting happen what happens, and you have no idea. Someone passed away. You lost a job. Situations, relationships, whatever. It's chaos, or in the words of the psalm, waves are crashing and crashing and crashing. You can't even get your breath because the next wave is coming. Maybe that's you. And so I don't want to demean or diminish what you're going through. But especially in those times of chaos, the rock upon which you stand is God's love for you that's been shown in Christ Jesus. No circumstance can rob you of that. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that's been shown to you in Christ Jesus. And so we ought to be thankful people. Thanksgiving ought always be on our lips. In fact, I'd say a lack of thanksgiving is evidence of a spiritual problem. Lack of thanksgiving, I think, is, is evidence of a spiritual problem. Then thirdly and finally, and, and we're, we're done here, spirit-filled Christians are people whose lives are characterized not only by singing, thanksgiving, but also by mutual submission. So verse 21, the final display of a spirit-filled life is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so this verse completes the picture of the spirit-filled life that Paul's painting, but, but this, this verse also transitions, it's like a hinge between what's come and what's to come, and so, so this will transition to next week, and because it, it, the next section, submission is going to be looked at in, in several specific settings, and actually for the coming weeks, so the rest of chapter 5, that's what he talks about. But here we should note that this, the attitude of the person who is filled with the Spirit is someone who has an attitude of self-denial and concern for the needs of others. So, so we, we have an attitude of sub- submission to each other. So, so I'm, I'm not the most important person. Right? I'm, I'm submitting to another, especially as he's going to walk out when, when there are p- places of authority. Submission works itself out. So what he doesn't say, he doesn't say submit to one another and, and, and that never submission is never worked out in your life. He says submit to one another and in that attitude of submission, here are some, some, some structures of authority and submission, that, that uh, a, a house code that you're to live in light of. But here... Right? No person who assumes authority, who is given authority, can exercise it in, in an attitude of arrogance. Right? There's an attitude of mutual submission that governs an actual authority and submission in real life. The other's focus, attitude here that Paul's calling to, that, that a spirit-filled person displays, is a central characteristic for those in the Christian community. And so the call to submission is an attitude that, that governs how we interact with all other people. And even in situations and settings where authority and submission are in play, this attitude of mutual submission ought to characterize all Christian relationships because notice he says, out of reverence to Christ. And so as I, as I find myself in a place of authority and submission, I am exercising authority out of reverence for Christ or I'm exercising submission out of reverence for Christ. And so the, lot, the place that I'm in 
I operate, I function in that place out of reverence for Christ. And so I, I'm Christ-like in that role. So spirit-filled Christian, and again, we'll, we'll, we'll look more about that, more at that next week because that, that topic's going to cover the rest of chapter five. Well, spirit-filled Christians are people whose lives are characterized by singing, thanksgiving, and mutual submission. And so let us look carefully how we walk. Let us walk not as unwise, but as wise. Christian, let us make the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is for you. Don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. That, that's not good for you. You can't be spirit-filled and, and, and be drunk with wine. So don't be drunk with wine. Rather, be, be filled with the Spirit. Live in light of the, the filling that you've received, the, the Spirit who's been given to you, and address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and, and sing and make melody in your hearts to the Lord. You have reason to sing. Give thanks always and for everything to God. God the Father, through, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've received everything from God through our Savior Jesus. So, so give thanks to him and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let us live humble lives, submitting to one another, deferring to others, not considering our, our own needs over that of others. As we do so, let, let us live spirit-filled, wise lives. Let's pray as we close.